You may be seated. <clears throat> Luke's Gospel again today, if you have your Bible, <clears throat> we are at the very end of chapter 22, or the text for today is on pages 11 and 12 in your bulletin. This is where it's all been, all been going. When day came... The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answers. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to, to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt-deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And they led him away. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And they, will, and they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had, been, what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your spirit's work in us, Lord, now as we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Have you ever noticed how sometimes what you know can get in the way of knowing? You have this sometimes with your kids, I suppose. I certainly have, where you'll, you'll try, be trying to tell them something like, Dad, I know. I know, Dad. I, I know. And you kind of, from your older vantage point, you want to say, well, I know you know, but there's so much more to know to really know what you think you know. You know? And they just kind of don't know that. Because they know. And that can be a problem in reading the Bible. This is a story you guys know very well. I doubt there's a verse in what I just read that is not super familiar to you. In fact, if you don't know this story, you probably are not. Like To be a Christian, is this is, the, this is our story, right? And so because we know the story so well, we think we know what it means. Yes, yes, I know the cross. What that means is when I die someday, I can go to heaven because Jesus died for my sins. And we can push it a bit further. This is obviously an example of love. So you know what the cross means? You good? You know, there was a hobbit once who uh, looked at a ring. And uh, he knew all about it. You know, my Uncle Bilbo found it, and he gave it to me. It's end of story. Little did he know the depths of the story behind that ring. And woven into the deceptively simple tapestry of this story we just read, there is an astonishing, astonishing array of threads. They would have been more visible to the original Jewish audience than they are to us today, but what I want to try to do for just a very few minutes here is I want to try to show you some of what Luke is doing in this story and what it means for us. And I'll just tell you right up front, if it seems at points today like I'm geeking out just a little bit, I'm actually quite okay with that because I hope that we will never hear this story or feel its power the same way again. And I want to begin with two things that we already know before we begin reading the story, and that is that it is Passover. You all know what Passover is? It is Passover, and Jesus has already told us earlier in the gospel that he is going to Jerusalem to accomplish what he calls an exodus. He told his disciples that back on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9. So what I want to do for my first point in today's sermon is I just want to talk for a moment or two about the echoes of exodus here. Echoes of exodus. So I'm going to ask you guys what is clearly a Sunday school question, and we're going to look for some audience participation here for a minute. What was the Exodus? Now, I'm going to go ahead and answer that because that is a lame Sunday school lesson. You all, if you don't know what the Exodus is, there's no hope for you. Um, The Exodus, of course, is when Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, right, out of Egyptian slavery. But here's the question I want to ask you guys. It's not such such a Sunday school question. What was the end of the Exodus? I mean, we could say the Exodus began at the burning bush. When was it actually finished? When was it actually completed? 
Well, let me ask you guys this question. Moses wrote five books. The second of them is Exodus. Where, how does the book of Exodus, now Moses wrote five books, like Moses knew there were five books. Those, those, weren't, those divisions weren't put in later by like English translators. Moses wrote these five books. When he finished book two, how does it end? Because this is the end of the Exodus. And this is what it says at the very end of Exodus. After Moses has finished building this tabernacle with all of its ornate furnishings, we are told, then the cloud that used to be up on Sinai covered that tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And what is happening at the end of Exodus is for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is living on the earth. He is dwelling among his people. And he told told Moses earlier in Exodus that this was the whole point and goal of the Exodus. See, we tend to think the Exodus was finished once once Pharaoh was left behind. Maybe the Red Sea. Finally, Pharaoh and his armies are washed away. We're not carrying Egyptian chains anymore. We're good. No, no. In Exodus 29, God said to Moses, as he's working on this tabernacle, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Now notice this phrase, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. In God's mind, the Exodus has not done its thing until he is dwelling among Israel. Now, That means that the end of Exodus is actually a problem. God has now come down and is living here. But that, at the very end of Exodus, as the glory cloud fills the tabernacle, who did we just hear couldn't be in there anymore? Who could not stand in the tabernacle because God is now in it? See, what what the end of Exodus does is it makes quite excruciatingly visible a problem that has been in place since Genesis 3. And it is this, God can set up a dwelling place on earth, anywhere he chooses. But sinners cannot come in. So it's not actually all that helpful in a way at the end of Exodus that God is now dwelling among his people. The problem is nobody can come into God's house, including Moses, because of their sin. So what we find out is we need another book. We need a third book of Moses, and he writes one. And it is very interesting, so you've just read about this, you know, glory cloud filling the tabernacle, and then you open up Leviticus chapter 1, and these are the first words you read. The Lord called to Moses from the tent of meeting. So God's inside, Moses is outside, and God calls to him in Leviticus 1.1 from the tent of meeting. Now here's the really weird thing. One book later, you finish Leviticus, right? So book 3 is finished, and you open up book 4, which is the book of what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, guess how Numbers begins? It's almost identical to the opening of of Leviticus with one little preposition change. We are told at the beginning of Numbers that the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. So somehow between Leviticus 1.1, God's calling to Moses outside the tent of meeting, and and Numbers 1.1, now God's calling and talking to Moses in the tent of meeting, Moses got in. Somehow there was a way in to be with God. So, y'all think about this for a minute. What happens in that third book, the book of Leviticus? Some of you are like, I don't know, because that book drives me crazy. It is the graveyard of all Bible reading plans. I open up Leviticus, and I am just lost for like, I don't know, 27 chapters. 
It is, it is quite messy. It is quite gruesome. There are a lot of details, but what you will notice if you pay attention in reading the book of Leviticus is that that entire book is built like a sandwich, and it all sandwiches layer by layer by layer, kind of concentric sandwich layers, around the very central chapter of the book. Now, here I'm going to geek out for a minute. If you really want to go crazy, what you will notice is that is the third book, which means it's the middle of the books of Moses. If you really want to get crazy, you will notice, if you read carefully, all five books of Moses, book one and five, book two and four, they all sandwich together around book three, which then sandwiches around the very, very central chapter, which is chapter 16. This is the absolute center chapter of Moses' work. In the center of the book of Leviticus, rather, And do you know what that dead center in the middle of chapter 16 is about? It is the only opportunity in the entire Torah of Moses for a sinner to walk in, not just to the outer court around the tabernacle, not just to walk into the tabernacle itself inside the curtain. But this is the one opportunity for a sinner to walk all the way through the tabernacle, past its furniture, and walk through that last curtain into the, what is called the very most holy place, where there's this ark with a mercy seat on it, and the glory cloud of God is there. One provision in the entire Torah that a sinner can walk into that most holy place, and it is called the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And once a year in chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest and he alone was to slaughter sin offerings for himself and for the whole congregation of Israel. And then he was to take the blood of those sin offerings and with a smoking censer before him to shield his eyes from the glory of God, he was to step inside that veil with cherubim woven on it And he was to sprinkle the blood of those sin offerings on the mercy seat. One day a year, one time, and do it right, or you will be dead. And the effect of that day of atonement was twofold. The number one thing that that ritual did on the day of atonement was it comprehensively cleansed God's tabernacle and God's people comprehensively washed away all of their impurity and sin. Because God says in that chapter these words, you, after this ritual, you shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins. All of them. Like you missed, a, you missed a sin offering this year throughout the year? Well, now it's covered. There's comprehensive cleansing on this day of atonement. It's all been washed away. That was the first effect. And the second effect was not any less important. Michael Morales describes this very well. He says, on the Day of Atonement, Adam's eastward expulsion from the Garden of Eden was reversed. Now, this is very interesting. You'll remember in Genesis, when God throws Adam and Eve out of the garden because they're now impure sinners before him, they are cast out to the east. And eventually, Cain wanders off to the east, and all the sinners are walking east because you can't go west anymore because God threw you out of his place, and he put a cherubim with a sword. You can't get back in. And the tabernacle is built, so the door of the tabernacle is on the east end. And guess which way the priests are walking? They're walking west toward the most holy place. And on this day of atonement, says Morales, that eastward expulsion from the Garden of Eden was reversed as the high priest, a cultic Adam, 
ascended westward through the cherubim woven veil and into the summit of the mountain of God. Man, thrown out of the garden in Adam, is now walking westward back into the presence of God. That has been opened one time for a few minutes on the Day of Atonement to the high priest. That's Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. But in, in Leviticus, there is actually a little bit more. That's glorious, that center chapter. But then a few chapters later, we find out something that is really interesting in light of Luke. We discover a few chapters later in Leviticus that this annual Day of Atonement, this yearly ritual on the Day of Atonement, it's going to have another role in Israel's calendar. Because we're told in chapter 25 of Leviticus, listen closely to this, after seven sevens of years, or actually the, 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 the Hebrew language, after seven Sabbaths of years, on the Day of Atonement in the 50th year, we are told, a loud trumpet is to be blown throughout the whole land, and this is the exact language of Leviticus, the purpose of that trumpet on that Day of Atonement in the 50th year, it is to proclaim liberty to all the inhabitants of the land. And stuff gets real crazy in the economy then in Israel because all the debts are forgiven. And all the debt slaves, the people that have sold themselves into slavery because they can't pay their debts, they're all released. And all of the land inheritances that people have sold over this 50 years to try to pay their debts, all of those land land inheritances that God assigned to these people, they all revert back to the owners. And that Day of Atonement, what we call the beginning of the year of Jubilee, in the 50th year, it is, as Leviticus shows us, the culmination of Sabbaths, a completion of seven sevens of Sabbath, and it is the beginning of true rest. Because, you know, you came out of Egypt, but now you've got debt again. Now you're slaves again. And the real rest that God wants from his people, he will not stop until there is no debt and there is no slavery. And that is all rooted in and grounded in and made possible by the Day of Atonement. It's just awesome. Now, those are the echoes of Exodus. Now let me take a moment with Luke's Jubilee. Because all of that Hebrew Bible background that I've just been laying out for you is echoed in Luke's gospel. Only those echoes start not here in chapter 22 and 23. The echoes of that Exodus thing, they really start in chapter 4, Jesus' first sermon. So this is, he's just fresh from the wilderness, fresh from his baptism. He walks into a synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he picks up a Bible, and he's going to preach his first sermon as the Messiah now, anointed to be God's Messiah, And what text does he select? He picks up a chapter from Isaiah that says this, talking about the Messiah. This is Isaiah's prophesying about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has sent me, notice the language, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Isaiah is explicitly echoing Leviticus that when the Holy Spirit God anoint, the Holy Spirit-filled, God-anointed Messiah comes, he's going to be the one who's going to bring the real jubilee, the real release, the real liberation of God's people permanently, where it can never be, it can never kind of go back into the slave and debt cycle. 
He will permanently release God's people from their debt and from their bondage. This will be the absolute fulfillment of the Exodus and everything God intended in the Exodus. Reaching, you know, Passover, reaching through Exodus into the Day of Atonement, into the Jubilee. Well, Messiah is going to bring the whole thing that all that is pointing to. And Jesus stands up that day in the synagogue and he says, after he closes the book and sits, sits down, he says, I want you to know that scripture is fulfilled now. I am he. Now, imagine that you are a Jewish reader of Luke's gospel, and you're in chapter 4, and you're like, huh, the Jubilee, the Messiah Jubilee, not just kind of foreshadows, but the real thing, and Jesus is the Messiah, he's saying, and your question would be, all right, but where is the Day of Atonement that makes that Jubilee possible? And it is so interesting to pay attention to the details in Luke's gospel because that first sermon of Jesus, his inaugural sermon, it occurs on the very first Sabbath mentioned in Luke's gospel. And I'm indebted to Ryan Handerman for pointing this out. Guess how many Sabbaths are mentioned in Luke's gospel? Seven Sabbaths are mentioned in Luke's gospel. And guess where the seventh Sabbath falls? You can work through them. You can look up the word Sabbath in Luke's gospel. And guess where number seven falls? The completion, as it were, of the Sabbaths. Well, it's in this chapter, we didn't read verse 56. It is the day after Jesus is crucified. And so you see that with exquisite literary skill, Luke, beginning with the first Sabbath, where Jesus says that Jubilee thing that Isaiah talked about and Leviticus talked about, I'm bringing it. Luke then, with exquisite skill, he shows that this death of Jesus, the seventh Sabbath, it is the culmination of Sabbaths, just like that Jubilee Day of Atonement. And it is, in fact, the great Day of Atonement, as it were, in the 50th year, at the completion of the Sabbath, at the, at the end of the sevens. And it is a Day of Atonement here that, just, that happens on the cross. This is the Day of Atonement from which there will then sound forth for all time and in all of the world that trumpet blast of the Jubilee. I find it very interesting, actually, in light of this, that in verse 46... When Jesus, when the darkness has, has settled over him and he is in torture and, and agony and suffering the wrath of God for our sins, when he's about to yield up his spirit because he's finished his work, what does he do? He cries with a loud voice. And I wonder if that is another way in which Luke is trying to hear, let us hear an echo of that loud trumpet that says the Jubilee has now arrived. Why? Because this is the final sin offering. This is it. There are no more. This is God's righteous son dying for the unrighteous sons and daughters of Adam. He is carrying his own blood into that fiery glory of God's heavenly presence. And he is paying our debt to God and to his justice once for all time. This is the great day of atonement. There will never be another and it is so then interesting to notice a couple of details that when you realize that's what Luke is doing. He's presenting the Jubilee grounded in this Day of Atonement and all the echoes of Exodus behind it. That's when you can really see a couple of details just leap off the page. Note them quickly. One little detail is that the very last sinner Jesus releases in his earthly ministry is one of these criminals who are crucified next to him. First of all, this, this guy doesn't strike me as the most obvious candidate to have a lot of spiritual insight. Plus, he's being crucified, which is a little distracting. 
So I literally don't know how it is that this man, at some point in his literally excruciating agonies, how he suddenly realizes who it is who is beside him. I don't know how, except the grace of God given to him, he can suddenly know by faith that even as he is, his lifeblood is draining out and the lifeblood of this man beside him is draining out, he somehow knows this is not the end for this man. And in fact, asks to be remembered by Jesus when he comes into his kingdom, which he obviously expects will happen after this horrible death. How does he see all of this? How does he get it? That is such a mystery. But Jesus gives him a very curious answer, doesn't he? And you think about the Day of Atonement. Adam's eastward expulsion being reversed. What does Jesus say? He says, today, I'm going to walk back into paradise. Only this time, you're going to be with me because this high priest is not going alone. And indeed, there's a second detail in verse 45. After this day of atonement, there won't even be a veil. There won't even be a curtain. That cherubim woven curtain that separated sinners from the most holy place, it is simply torn from the top to the bottom, from God to man, Because in the death of Jesus, that sword in the hand of that cherubim at the entrance of God's presence, you may not come back in here because you are, you are, you you have offended God. You are, his justice is against you. His wrath and condemnation are upon you. You will die if you come here. That sword has been laid down forever in the blood of Jesus. And that rending of the curtain is saying to sinners, there is now no condemnation that stands between you and the living God. The sword is sheathed. And you and I can now stand before the consuming fire of God's holiness and we can live. Thanks be to God. I want to just conclude, what does all of this mean for us? Because at the very beginning of what we read in chapter 22, verse 69, Jesus says to those who are going to crucify him, from now on, From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God's power. He is saying to them that after the cross, this Son of Man, who, you remember Daniel's prophecies, having approached the glory cloud of God, where the Ancient of Days is seated, approached, as now we know, with his, and Hebrews will tell us later in the New Testament, approached that the Ancient of Days with his own blood, to make atonement for all of our sins, of all of his people, in all times and places, having gone to the Most High and offered his blood to cancel the debt and remove the curse for all of his people, Jesus says, that Son of Man, from now on, has all authority in heaven and earth. This one who gave his blood for us. This one who asked, if you notice in chapter 23, verse 34, who asked for release even for his murderers. What a thing to say as you are are beginning to experience the agonies of the cross. Father, release, release them. They do not know what they're doing. That is the king. That son of man, that priest, that self-offering one He is now Lord. He is at the right hand of God's power. He's the one who rules. His is the kingdom. And the gospel of his kingdom is the sound of jubilee. He reigns to bring liberty to the debtors and the captives 
and the disinherited. I want you to just think about this as we close. Jubilee under Jesus. Jubilee is about debts. It's about chains. It's about burdens. It's about dead ends with no resources to open up a new path. You're a debtor. You're a slave. That's what Jubilee is about. And brothers and sisters, you are the people of this king. You are living in Jesus' jubilee. And I was just thinking, you know, you hear all the time people talking about how to be effective witnesses for Jesus in the 21st century. I mean, all, after all, it's just such a confused time. There's so much this, so much that. Isn't it harder than ever to ever show people who Jesus is and what he's about and try to, you know, how do you preach a gospel no one even seems to care about? but you are people of the Jubilee. And I wonder what it would be like to live together in a community where we are all actively looking for debts and chains and burdens and dead ends in each other's lives, actively looking for them and actively working under Jesus to bring release, relief, I don't need to collect your debts to me because Christ forgave my debts and he gave me all the wealth of his love. So I don't need to come throttle you because you owe me, right? I can actively invest in your freedom. I can really work actively to help you find release from your sense of condemnation, from your shame, from your sin, from your bad habits from your poverty, from your oppression. I can work for your freedom in soul and body. Why? Because Jesus set me free. I can just generously provide for you. I can, I can, I can give you beyond what you even need. I can just lavish upon you what the Lord has given to me because my God supplies all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's the jubilee. I'm free. I'm well. So I have mercy and generosity for you. Can you imagine bringing people from outside into a community like that? So they can really taste and see in a tangible way that because of the atonement, and there's no other explanation for it, because of this atonement, there is a living, visible jubilee in this broken world. It's really, it's, it's happening, like it's going on. You can actually see people here, and they are working for justice. Yes, they're working to right wrongs for the good of others. They're working to break yokes they're working to provide for needs, but they're doing all of this with a heart of mercy, not vengeance, not violence. Because you know what? Even murderers make it into paradise. It is hypocrisy to talk and sing about the cross and not practice jubilee. If you're a Jesus follower, you are an agent of jubilee. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, as I encourage my own heart, look at every relationship in your life and reassess what does Jesus want you to do in light of this eternal dawn, this jubilee that began on the Day of Atonement. It's interesting to me that in our lives, you know, the times of greatest joy are usually when there's a, a new beginning. You know, we, we love births, we love weddings, we love a coronation, if you're part of the empire. You love a new job, I got a new house, I got a new church, I got a new friend, I got a new day, I got a new year, yay, new. And then you know what happens with every new thing? 
Things start to decay. They start to wear down. They become stagnant. They break. Sin enters. Corruption enters. Misery enters. Debts pile up. Chains are forged. This is just the way of the world, and if you live long enough, it will start to make you very, very cynical because every new beginning, you're like, you're just waiting for the stuff to kind of go to pieces again because it always seems to. And this is why we need the Jubilee, but God, but the cross, beloved, but the atonement, but Jubilee, but the Lamb reigns. And how can we live under this king so that others can feel as they live with us that trumpet call of the freedom with, with, with which Christ has made us free? Amen. Grant it for your glory, we pray, Father, in Jesus' good name. Amen.